James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Why can Christians be such hypocrites? You know, there have been various books written over time to try and defend um, the Christian faith. And what happens is you often look at their table of contents and they are structured around key questions that people ask um, who, are, who have doubts about the Christian faith and its, and its validity. And so these, these books are often written to answer these particular questions. And when you look at the table of contents of all of these books, a lot of the same themes crop up again and again. So you have questions like, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Or isn't Christianity a white man's religion? Now, over the years, some of these questions has changed as our society has been concerned about particular issues. But there are a couple of questions that always seem to remain the same. One is about God allowing suffering. But another is this one. If Christianity is true, why are Christians often not living consistently with their beliefs? Why is it that Christians can be such hypocrites? Now, for some, some people, this question becomes obvious because of things in the news or even things in history when they see, um, for example, stories of Christian leaders who are abusing people in their care, perhaps even children. When they look at history and they hear about, for example, the Crusades or times when Christian societies have even been complicit in slavery, these sorts of questions come to the fore. But for others, it's a question born out of personal experience. 
Some ask this because they have had Christians in their lives who have lived in utterly inconsistent ways um, with, with the teaching that they espouse, and they have been harmed personally by such people. Why are Christians such hypocrites? Well, this question is a big one. But the truth is that the Bible tackles it head on. Jesus had a lot to say about religious hypocrisy himself. And if this is a concern of yours, then perhaps you will find yourself a kindred spirit in the person of James, the Apostle James, who wrote this letter. Now, James most probably is the um, half-brother of Jesus. He was the first of the Christian leaders of the Jerusalem church. And we've been working through this letter as a church, and we've been finding that the letter of James packs a real punch. There's evocative imagery in it. Sometimes James can be quite fiery. And the thing is, James cares passionately about the Christian church not being hypocritical. He seeks what he calls pure religion, a Christianity that is there in substance and not just in name only. And in today's passage, we see him tackle Christian inconsistency primarily through the lens of favouritism. And he's going to talk about favouritism, but then at the end, he comes to the root of the issue about what true Christian faith is. What is faith? What does it look like? How does it work itself out? So as we come to this passage this morning, we want to hear what it says. As Christians, we need to hear it because we need to take seriously areas of our lives where we may be compromised or hypocritical. And if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this this morning as well. You need to see that Christianity's central text, the Bible, takes hypocrisy seriously. But also, perhaps God will use this passage to speak to you particularly about your life this morning. There's something for us all to hear from here. So let's brace ourselves and see what James has to say. Now, firstly, he says that favouritism is wrong. Favouritism is wrong. And for James, it seems that favouritism is a bit of a major issue in the church as he sees it, because he devotes quite a bit of space to addressing it. And he's categorical. Look at verse 1. Believers in our glorious Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. We must not show it. And in order to illustrate this, um, he gives an example. And the environment for this example is the church gathering. So you can imagine, think queuing up outside the Edgar Wood building where we meet on a Sunday afternoon. Or um, if you've been at the church a little bit longer, coming into the academy school where we have tea and coffee, that kind of reception area. And James says, look, imagine two people coming into the church. One is a rich person. It says he has a gold ring and fine clothes. So in today's terms, imagine someone in a Ted Baker suit, well-groomed, got good cologne. Maybe he's got a nice watch on and a glowing, moisturised face. Maybe he's standing upright with confidence and gravitas. But then a poor person comes in, in filthy old clothes, James says. And you can imagine that in today's context and culture very easily. Perhaps a, a homeless person with old, ripped clothes, stains on them, matted and greasy hair, perhaps a, a bad odour as well. And James says, 
Imagine this scenario where the rich person is given special attention, it says verse 3. He's given the, given the best seat in the house. But the poor person is told to sit out the way on the floor. Now, one can imagine potential reasons why that behaviour might take place. So for some, you know, a rich person coming into their gathering may represent opportunity. So it might reflect well on the church to have this person in their congregation. Go to the best seat. Want to treat them well. Perhaps this person has some sort of influence with other people and can work a few things for the church in a positive way. Or perhaps he might even give financially to the church and be a patron of it. So he represents opportunity. The poor person, though, may represent discomfort. They may be a little bit of a threat to other people in the group. They might make people feel uncomfortable or others might feel like they don't want to be near this person. And so it's better that they stay out of the way. Now, for James, he imagines that a scenario of this could happen in a church gathering. But his verdict on such behaviour is without qualification. It's wrong. It's wrong. And he gives a number of reasons. Perhaps most strikingly, look at verse 4. He says this, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James's point is this. If you show favouritism... If you treat people differently in this way, you are discriminating. So to think in, in more literal terms, you are dividing the community up into two types of people. You're cutting it in half. You've created a hierarchy, a two-tier system between one type of person and another. So the unity of the church is compromised. And the idea that all people are equal before God has been ripped up. He says, you've become judges with evil thoughts. They've put on their caps and their gowns. They've sat in a high seat and made a declaration. You are this sort of person, but you are this sort of person. And James says this is deeply wrong. It comes from evil thoughts. It's wrong to act like a judge anyway. Later on in James, in chapter 4, he will say that God is the only judge. But to show favouritism is to play the role of judge ourselves. James goes on, look at verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? James says that to show favouritism in a way that neglects the poor turns the gospel upside down. You see, God seems to take particular delight in lifting up the poor and lowly of the world, in giving them justice, in bringing them into his kingdom, even when the rest of the world neglects them. Christianity is good news for the poor. And throughout the world, it's often the case that, that Christianity grows within poor communities. The Lord seems pleased to bring those who have uh, of, of low status into the church. Now, the idea of poor here doesn't just necessarily mean material poor. And of course, many affluent people have become Christians as well. And poor can represent an attitude, a, a sense of humility, which is something that we will come back to later. All Christians must be poor in this sense, regardless of their bank balance. But poor here, that word, does carry 
economic connotations. And so to show favoritism against the poor means that the result is that they are dishonoured, verse 6. Dishonoured. Their dignity has been taken away from them by these judges. And it's entirely against the grain of the gospel. And James goes on, verse 6. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not blaspheming God's name? You see, in James's day, Christians were a vulnerable minority. In fact, many of them were poor themselves. And because of the societal conditions, they were prone to being exploited by rich people, by powerful people. And so James's point is this. Why would you pass over the poor, whom God has chosen to bless as part of the gospel, in order to favour the rich, when the rich are the ones who are more likely to exploit you. James is quite adamant here. Favoritism is wrong. It's evil, particularly when it is at the expense of the poor. Well, how does favoritism work? I, we, we show favoritism when we think that there's something for us to gain. It is about selfish gain, really, whether that's money or respect or even um, showing favoritism to one sort of person because we think that it'll be more comfortable spending time with them. One of my friends is completing a PhD in musical composition and um, he tells me about these music networking events that he often attends and all these composers and students get invited to them and it's a meeting where influential people will be present and everyone there has got an agenda. They're trying to meet and network with the right people they're trying to kind of connect with someone who might be able to help them in their career path. And he says that he's, at these sorts of events, what will happen is you will chat to somebody and you will find having this quite familiar experience, I think, um, you might agree, where you're speaking to somebody and you notice that they're not keeping eye contact with you, but you see them kind of looking over your shoulder. And the point is, they're kind of chatting to you, but they've seen that there's someone else they'd rather speak to. Um, perhaps they're not getting much from the interaction and they can gain more from speaking to someone else more important. And if you've ever had that sort of experience, it feels demeaning, doesn't it? It feels dishonouring. But it's that sort of drive, that drive for selfish gain that fuels favouritism. You know, we're tempted to give people our time and attention only when we think we can get something from it. But what that means is that those with little, the ones who are lowly, the ones who are poor, the ones who don't have much to give in worldly terms, their dignity is snipped away as they're passed over in favour of others. And James is clear it has no place in the church. It can have no place in the church. So where might we go wrong here? And it's interesting, James envisages this scenario playing out in a church gathering. And, and so a natural application for us is thinking about the same sort of thing. How do we engage other Christians or other people in a church gathering? Whether that's an in-person service like at Edgar Wood, or whether this is a, a life group, uh, or any other kind of gathering where Christians are. So if you're a regular at Grace Church, you know, I've got to ask you, do you show favouritism? in who you choose to speak to and engage with in church. Now, we all have limited resources. We can't 
share all our time and attention with everybody equally. But are there sorts of people, types of people that you will tend to pass over and not spend time welcoming, chatting to, engaging with? Perhaps these are the sorts of people who it might feel you won't gain much from chatting with them. They might not be that fun to chat to. There might even be some language barriers. You might not feel always super comfortable talking to them. If that's the case, have you become a judge? Have you put on your cap and gown? Are you, whether you know it or not, dividing the church community? And if you're a visitor at Grace Church, I have to say, you have the right to expect to be welcomed when you come to be with us. And the extent to which we have passed you over is the extent to which we have failed you. Also, to follow James's heart here, we need to think about the issue of the poor and needy in our area and ask ourselves hard questions. Are we ready to receive such people in our church gathering? You know, through our internationals ministries, we connect with all sorts of different people. Asylum seekers, refugees, people with low English ability, some with quite traumatic histories. Should these people come into our church gathering, will they feel welcomed? Will they feel honoured? It's interesting, James has this scenario which presupposes that poor people are coming to the church anyway. So we need to ask, is Grace Church a place where poor and needy people might come? Might they know about us? Might they want to come? And if not, why is that not the case? It's worth reflection for us as a church. Favoritism is wrong. We must do everything we can to stamp it out. So it's wrong. Secondly, favoritism is lawless. It's lawless. So for James, favoritism isn't a small matter. It's not some isolated issue that has no bearing on other aspects of our lives. It reveals something much bigger, which is lawlessness. Look at verse eight, verse eight. If you keep the royal law, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So what James is doing here is he is pointing to the standards that God has set for humanity, his law. It's a royal law because Jesus is the king and it's his law. And in terms of how we treat others, it's summed up in the famous command, love your neighbour as you love yourself. This is the heartbeat of Christian ethics, the core principle that unites the way we treat other people. And James says that if you commit favouritism, you break this law. And that is very serious. Now, all this conversation about law can leave us feeling a little bit disengaged, can't it? The word law isn't particularly exciting. When we think of the word law, we, we think of something cold, something dusty, something impersonal, something restrictive, in fact. You know, laws keep us doing, often, the things we would like to do. We'd quite like to drive at 80 miles an hour. Um, in the on the motorway. We'd like to be able to sing inside a church corporately together. Laws can have a negative connotation for us, but when it comes to God's law, his standards for us, we, we shouldn't think in such terms. Think of God's law 
as a blueprint for humanity. Okay, God's laws are in effect what the good life is. If all the world kept God's law, then this world would be a place of flourishing and beauty. It would be, it would be heaven on earth. A world where people don't lie or steal, where people are not trapped in self-absorption, but they actually reach out to help other people. It's a beautiful picture, God's law, and it's embodied in the Lord Jesus. You see, God's law describes the life of Jesus. His life was perfect, and he kept the law perfectly. He never lied. He never stole. He never hoarded his own resources. He truly did love his neighbour as himself. His heart and his life were full to the brim. And it's in Jesus, then, that we see what it is to be truly human. And that's what the law is, really. It's, it's the blueprint for humanity. It shows what it means to be truly human. And James' point here is that the law is, is an integrated whole. It's of one piece. Look at verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. You see, it's been said that God's law is like a sheet of glass, not like a pile of stones. You know, a pile of stones, you can take one stone away and the pile will remain as it is, by and large. It will remain intact. But with a sheet of glass, if you break it at one point, the entire pane can shatter. Cracks appear over the whole area. One break affects the whole. And this is the same with God's law. Because it's intricately connected, a failure at one point is a failure of all of it. If you show favoritism, you have not loved your neighbour as yourself. And James mentions the, the commands of adultery and murder. And, and he says, you know, if you fail in one area, you can't then cordon it off from the rest of your heart. I think at some level we, we instinctively know this. Okay, imagine Harvey Weinstein on trial for sexual abuse. Imagine if in his defence it comes to light that he's actually been a great philanthropist, that he has given large amounts of his money to worthy causes that have benefited people charities. Now if you learned that, would, in any, would that in any way convince you of his love for humanity? I don't, I don't think it would, would it? If anything, his crimes taint his good deeds. The hypocrisy of it is awful. And James basically says as much, the cracks spread through our whole hearts when we break one part of the law. The whole law is compromised. We can't just quarantine our failures off from the rest of our lives. We can't pat ourselves on the back for not being racist if we're gossips. We can't pat ourselves on the back for not watching pornography if we refuse to forgive a brother or a sister. We can't think of ourselves as an upright person if we show favoritism. Particularly, says James, if we've dishonoured the poor in doing so. What does this mean? Friends, it means we are all lawbreakers. All of us. 
We've all taken that blueprint for humanity and we have ripped it up. We've all failed at loving our neighbour. We have not kept the royal law. And the consequences for such behaviour are serious. Look at verses 12 and 13. Speak and act appropriately, Jesus tells these Christians, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So though we may set ourselves up as judges of other people, there is only one true judge. And God will judge without mercy those who haven't shown mercy. Now hold on, one of James's readers, you can imagine, might say. We're Christians. We're Christians. We believe in salvation through faith. We're not judged on the basis of what we do. What's all this talk about judgment based on our works? And that's a good question. At this point, we enter into perhaps the most controversial section of James's letter. And on the face of it, he seems to challenge what has been the classic Protestant and evangelical understanding of salvation, that it is through faith alone, that we do not impress God by our works. Um, nothing we do can make us right with God. It is only because of what Jesus has done and our faith in him that enables us to be saved. And yet James comes along and he emphasizes the need for Christians to obey God, to be doers of the law, not just hearers. And in this section, he speaks of the necessity of works in the Christian life. How should we understand this? How do we balance the fact that the way to God is not through our good deeds, but nevertheless, good deeds are inseparable from true faith? Now, we're going to dig into this, I'm sure, next week as James continues his argument. We can start to unpack it a little bit now. And so let's look at our final point. Faith requires love. Faith requires love. That's what James says here. And his response to those who might object to um, what he's just said is this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So that is, a faith that isn't paired with good deeds, such as looking after the poor and needy in the church, is no good. In fact, as he will go on to say, it's not real faith at all. Now, it seems what James is trying to counter here is, is a view of being a Christian where faith is just a mere profession. It's, it's words. It's just knowledge. You can say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he died and rose again and will return. But the, th the thing is, faith is more than just knowledge. It's more than intellectual assent. And he gives the example in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister, that is a, a Christian, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Now, James chooses this example, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, it expresses the sort of concern for the poor that James has and what we've already seen. He, you know, favoritism neglects the poor. But not only favoritism, pious words that sound good and holy and well-meaning, but are devoid of any action, um, those are just as bad. You know, if you have someone in your church family and community who you know is poor and needy in some way, 
needy in a way that you could help with, and all you say is, oh, all the best, or even, I'll pray for you, but don't lift a finger to help them in any way, that is not faithful Christian living. And so this example helps make that clear and explicit. But the second reason this example has been chosen is because it serves as an illustration of the, the nature of empty words, particularly in relation to faith. If you say to a needy Christian, go well, but don't do anything to help them, that is just like saying, I believe in Jesus, but there being no attempt to live by Jesus' standards at all. It shows that the things we say are empty and the actions show that the words are hollow. You see, if you truly have faith in Jesus, you will be seeking to love him and love others in the way in which he commands. That will be imperfect, but there will be the desire to do that. But otherwise, if you do not, then as James says, your faith is not looking particularly real. As he says, faith not accompanied by action is dead. So what is the relationship then between faith and works? Am I right with God because of my faith without my works or, or not? How does that work? Well, I think the principle here is that good works are the evidence of our salvation, but they are not the ground of our salvation or the basis of it. Evidence, but not the ground. Let me try to explain by way of an illustration. So when I got accepted into university many years ago, the grounds on which I was accepted were my grades. Now, admittedly, it wasn't a particularly high bar. I didn't need to get very high grades, a few Cs at A-level, but that was the ground, okay? So me getting those gra grades meant that I could enter university. That was the basis of me getting in. But once I was in university, the evidence of me being a student was my ID card. I was given a card, it had my face and my name on it. And if I was wandering through a university building and security wanted to stop me and check that I wasn't trespassing, they would ask me to show my card. And that would prove that I was a student. Now, my ID card didn't get me into university. In fact, I didn't even get the card until I went, went to university. The card came later. But all students have the ID card by necessity. I needed it. And without it, I couldn't prove that I was a student. The analogy isn't perfect, but in some way that helps to show the relationship between faith and works. We are saved through faith alone. That is, nothing good in ourselves makes us right with God. See, the ground of our salvation is what Jesus has done. His life and death and resurrection, which we receive by faith, by, by trusting in him. But the evidence of our faith, of our salvation, is our good deeds. Our love for each other, our desire to care for others in the Christian community and beyond. That shows others that our faith is real. And so according to James, faith and works are inseparable and if you have true faith, necessarily good works will follow from that by necessity. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. If you truly grasp who Jesus is, his love for you, 
his his glory, like we were speaking about at the beginning of the service, the fact that he is king over all, then surely you will want to love him and serve him. Surely. You see, if you say you trust in Jesus, but then there's no desire to live in obedience to him, perhaps that's a sign that maybe you don't truly trust him or have truly grasped the gospel. And this is James's point. Now, in his sights are Christians who are quick to say they have faith in Jesus, but don't show any evidence of the fact that they want to serve him or love other people. Faith requires love. And though we're not saved by what we do, a lack of love in our hearts should be a concern because faith will always result in works, in good deeds. Now, we will never be perfect in this life. We will always fail in varying measure to love our neighbour as ourselves. And we will find ourselves showing favouritism at times. But there should be some sign that we at some level are growing in loving others, growing in loving God, growing in loving the needy in particular. We can't always discern that truth in ourselves sometimes. We need others to point it out to us. But there should be some sign. This is what James is speaking of. Where does this leave us then as we finish? Well, James has exposed us, hasn't he? He's exposed our favouritism, our lawlessness, our spiritually sounding God talk that actually covers up a lack of care. He's exposed that for all to see. And perhaps you feel convicted. What is our only option? Well, none of us are perfect, as I've said. All of us have failed. And so our only option is to humble ourselves. It's to take the gravity of our lawlessness seriously. It's to see that we have torn up that blueprint for humanity that is embodied in Jesus's life. We have to take that seriously. And that's what James wants from us. He's not seeking perfection. That's impossible. But he is warning against an empty claim to be a Christian without any real desire to love others. He wants us to own our failures before God, to repent of them, to take them seriously. Because once we do that, once we understand who we are before God and ask for his forgiveness and grace, then we can receive it. He wants us to be humble. And in this way, I think we come full circle in the passage because it is as we humble ourselves that we realise that we are poor. Not necessarily materially poor, but spiritually poor. We have nothing to give. We have nothing to bring to God. We are without resources spiritually because we're lawbreakers. But what does Jesus say elsewhere? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as James puts it in verse 5, he has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. If we humble ourselves, if we repent of our sin, if we come to Jesus and ask for mercy, he will forgive us. He will save us. And it is in that true expression of repentance and faith that he will give us the power to change 
He will give us our, um, He will give us the Holy Spirit, who will come and live in us, and give us the power to be that little bit more loving, day by day, to become increasingly less guilty of showing favoritism, to love our neighbour as ourselves, bit by bit. We can become a church that is less and less polluted by favoritism, more and more loving of our neighbours, more and more truly human. We just need to own our failures before God and seek his mercy. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, individually and corporately, we have broken your law. We are, to use another Bible translation, transgressors, lawless. We may have kept some laws to a degree, but we have broken others. And the cracks have shattered through all our hearts. And we are desperately in need of your help and your forgiveness. Lord, please forgive us where we have not cared for those who are needy in our congregation. Forgive us where we have not been welcoming, where we have shown favoritism and been judges who have divided up the congregation. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bear fruit in our lives so that we would show evidence of salvation. Lord, for those of us who, there may be some who have considered themselves a Christian all their lives and yet have realized that they haven't had any any love for other people and that the beliefs that they claim have, have, have not actually changed them in any way. Perhaps they realize that they have not understood the gospel truly. Lord, please meet them today. May we be willing as a church to become poor before you, admit our helplessness and our need, and show mercy to us, Lord. We thank you that you're merciful. We thank you that you're forgiving. We thank you that Jesus died to save sinners and lawbreakers. We pray that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.